0: I'm Rob Penzer, I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center, thank you for coming out today for what promises to be a fascinating program on human and non-human minds. Before uh, we get to the introductions of today's participants, I just have a few announcements. This is the last uh, of our roundtables for the academic year, and I want to just give you a little bit of a taste of uh, some of the roundtables uh, coming up in the fall. Uh, we're going to start out in September on the subject of interdisciplinary investigations. Uh, our John Templeton Foundation roundtables continue in October with Understanding Genius, followed by Genes, Computers, and Medicine. In November, we'll be addressing Epigenetics. Uh, we have a new Arts and Humanities program, and the topic uh, toward the end of November will be on translation. Then we're going to have a three-day symposium in December, a Freudian perspective on what ails the world today. And that uh, will be an international uh, event with uh, participants from uh, from Europe and, and, the, and the States. Then uh, in mid-December, uh, capital with an A, notions, the future of the American economy. Then we continue again with the Templeton Foundation-sponsored uh, Roundtable on Memory, followed by The Meditative State, and then The Realm of Mystery. I also wanted to mention that uh, we had a very successful fundraiser on on May 8th, and nothing breeds success like success. So I hope it might inspire uh, some of you to consider uh, donating to to our nonprofit organization so that we can continue to provide you with such programs, and as as always, they are free and open to the public. So now, on to today's participants. To my right is Alexandra Horowitz, professor of psychology at Barnard College, whose dog cognition lab conducts research on a wide range of topics, including dog olfaction, interspecies play behavior, and attributions of secondary emotions to dogs. Among her books are Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know, and On Looking, 11 Walks with Expert Eyes. To her right is Diana Reese, Professor of Psychology at Hunter College and Professor of Biopsychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at the Graduate Center of CUNY, whose research focuses on cetacean cognition, communication, comparative animal cognition, and the evolution of intelligence. She's the author of Secrets of the Dolphins and the book The Dolphin in the Mirror, Exploring Dolphin Minds and Saving Dolphin Lives. To her right is Theodore Diamond, director of the Diamond Institute and adjunct assistant professor at Columbia Teachers College, whose work covers the study of the human mental and physical operating system as a holistic entity. Among his books are The Body in Motion, Its Evolution and Design, and Neurodynamics, The Art of Mindfulness in Action. To his right, Stuart Fierstein is the former chair of Department of Biological Sciences at Columbia University, where he studies the vertebrate olfactory system, and he's the author of the books, Ignorance, How It Drives Science, and Failure, Why Science is So Successful. And to his right is Irene Pepperberg, research associate and lecturer at Harvard University and author of the Alex studies describing over 20 years of peer-reviewed experiments on the cognitive and communicative abilities of gray parrots and Alex and Me, her memoir of a 30-year collaboration. Now to our roundtable. No,
1: you're going to start it.
0: No, no, you
2: start it. (laughs) You see, that's where we are here. That's the first
3: question. Who starts?
0: This is Edner Sassian, the director, but I think most of you know (laughs) him.
4: (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's so typical that we can't get a, a roundtable on cognition started, isn't right. it? <laughs> Diana, you start. Yes.
5: So I think what we're hoping to do today is talk about, as we advertise, the continuities and discontinuities between human and non-human animal minds. And um, it's, it's wonderful to be here together to do this with you, all of us. And we're going to, we are going obviously encourage discussion, not just us, but you as well. Um, I think some of, the, some of the ways we might start thinking about this is from a perspective of uh, Darwinian, the continuity of uh, evolution, emotion, thinking from a Darwinian perspective, as contrasted by a Cartesian view, Descartes' view that humans had a body that they also had this ghost in the machine, a, a thinking substance, a mind. And, the, and again, the view that Descartes had was that other animals only had the body. They were devoid of this thinking substance. And I guess I just want to kick in a first idea here to get us going, that for, for a long time, there's been this, this running debate as to whether other animals think or not. Of course, they, and Irene, I'll, I'll just mention this because you know this well. That you know, there were arguments that well, parrots certainly are vocal; they're using words, but it's just imitation, devoid of thought. Okay, and their their thought processes were thought processes were dismissed. Um, and I t- I know Irene's going to have a lot to say about that. Um, and then you know the other idea is that you know other animals are doing behavior that looks complex, but it's not complex. So with that, I think we can just start talking about what some of the things that we're learning. You
3: just said perfectly <laughs> describes many of the students in my class. Okay. <laughs> so, but and I mean that only partly as a joke, actually, because I think one of the Difficult issues is, in fact, defining what we mean, first of all, by the idea of continuity and discontinuity, where we should look for it, and uh, and how to identify what we consider to be conscious or cognitive behavior, whether there's anything to be made, whether there really is a difference between, um, I guess, what you would call uh, um, programmed behavior or or things like that, or um, instinctive behavior and more cognitive behavior. I mean, I don't. I, I think we know, okay, that's intuitive, whatever, the dog does something that all dogs do, and that looks intuitive, and then something else looks cognitive, but it just looks that way. And it's very difficult to actually... Can I tell a quick story, actually, about this? It has nothing to do with cognition, but it does have to do with behavior and the idea of um, instinct. So, So when a Bird, when a, a not a pigeon, a um, chicken is born, the very first thing it does when it gets out of the egg is it begins pecking the ground for food. It appears to be an instinctive behavior. For years, it was considered an instinctive behavior. So, Japanese scientists, whose name now. Eludes me. But anyway, Japanese scientists figured out that if you, this is a weird thing to do, I know, but if you spread Vaseline on an egg and hold it up to a light and you heat it slightly and hold it up to a light, it becomes transparent and you can see through it with a light behind it. I don't know how he discovered that. That's a whole other story, I suspect. But anyway, so this enabled him to take chicken eggs and put them in an incubator and then he them with Vaseline and watch the chicken develop. And as the chicken develops, it turns out that the chicken develops in the egg with its head bent over this way, and it's bent directly over the region that becomes the heart. And at some point, about four days before the thing cracks out of the egg, the heart begins beating. Actually, I think it's sooner than that, but it's now big enough to beat. And you watch the head of the chicken go up and down and up and down with the beat of the heart. And when it comes out of the egg, it just keeps on going up and down, and then it ends up picking up some food, and well, there you go, right? So it's not instinctive at all. It's a behavior that's learned, in fact, in some way or another. So, uh, so I just think that's a problem that, that's worth discussing, how we how we make this discriminate. We say discontinuity versus... Contin- I don't really know where to draw the lines here.
4: Well, I mean, there's a similar story with Jack Hellman's studies on the, the gulls. I mean, people know that gulls, parental gulls, have a little red spot on their beak, and supposedly the chicks come out instinctually hitting that red dot. It turns out... What is instinctual is something like what you're describing—a response to something that oscillates, and they happen to hit the red dot at one point, and mom and dad barf up some food, and you know there you go. <laughs> but it's it, but it's these things that people, many of these things people thought were instinctual, turns out to have a learning component, to have different aspects of behavioral intuition plus these other aspects. So much of what we do in our lab now has to look at the effects of context and that's another issue where we're studying these so many different types of behavior patterns that are exquisitely sensitive to the context in which you study them. And I mean, we we did a study where um, some people were looking at fish behavior. There's a fish that lives in a reef that they're cleaner fish and the other fish that live in the reef come over and get them, all the parasites taken off, but every once in a while another fish comes by, and these cleaner fish will jump out and grab those fish because the local residents they're going to just sit there they 're not going to come back, but you can opti- you know you can basically optimize your your food intake by jumping after these other fish. So it's too complicated to explain the whole study, but based on that, some people were comparing chimpanzees and these fish. And it turns out on this particular task, the fish outperformed the chimpanzees, okay? So we looked at this, I work with parrots, and I said, wait a minute, my birds can do this really easily. And so we did the task, and the parrots outperformed everybody. But it was the way we set up the, what we call the initial conditions. And when you compare exactly how you set up the experiment, you're going to find, in so many ways, different results, just based on how you set up the experiment. So this is another thing that people are not sensitive to. When they say, well, you know, this animal does this, and this animal can't do this, and blah, blah, blah. So much of it depends on exactly how you set up the experiment.
6: I mean, I think that what that and what some of the anecdotes highlight is that we're still trapped in a language which isn't working for us, right? The instinctive or learning or reflexive versus cognitive. And I I think we inherited a lot of this from the science that drove an interest in non-human animals, which is a psychological science, really. But they wind up being categories that now we're stuck with and, and we're trying to fit our behavior into one or the other. And it turns out it might not be the ideal characterization of most of the behavior that we're seeing. I mean, the importance of context seems to me to rise above that a little bit. But somebody will still want you to say, well, is it instinctive or is it learned? Which might not be easy to characterize.
5: There are all sorts of other issues, I think, as scientists that we face. And uh, some of them are You know, we're stuck looking through this human lens at other animal behavior and and intelligence, and you know, the I word, intelligence. How do you measure that? Is the intelligence of a dolphin the same thing as the intelligence of a chimpanzee? I mean, morphologically, they're different. They come from very different environments. They've been separated by 95 million years of separate evolution. We might expect that they'll do very different things. And, you know, that to me, that's one of the most challenging parts of it. How do you even think about intelligence in an animal and even know that? you're not missing most of it because simply they're using different modalities they're using different kinds of you know ways of thinking they have Perspectives, of their environment we can't imagine. I'll tell you one story that w- was very telling to me. A couple of years ago, my, one of the doctoral students in my lab, Preston Furter, and I did a study at the Smithsonian's National Zoo with elephants. I joke about saying that I study big gray brains and big gray mammals, elephants and dolphins. And um, so we worked with elephants this time, not dolphins. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with this study that was done many years ago by Wolfgang Koehler with showing the first evidence for insightful problem-solving in chimpanzees. So insightful problem-solving's been defined as have it being faced with a novel problem or situation, and without trial and error testing, you come up with, you have sort of this aha moment, and you see the solution suddenly, a sudden you know solution or the re- a reorganization of your thinking, so you can f- solve this problem. so what curler did with chimps is he uh, hung bananas high above their reach. And he placed variety of other objects in their environment. This was done at a zoo in Tenerife. and he gave them there were some sticks and there were some boxes. And you know the chimps, one of them's name was Sultan, you know, and I forget the names of the others, were looking up, and you know they obviously couldn't reach it. And finally, one of the chimps, without trial and error, apparently, stacked the boxes, took a couple boxes, stacked them up, you know and, and then took a stick and was able to reach the banana. And that was sort of the first evidence that a non- human species showed this aha moment. They sort of got it. And we were really interested because there had been a lot of discussion about elephants being, elephants are big tool users. They're one of the biggest tool users, um, but somehow they weren't showing this kind of insightful problem solving when people gave them sticks to solve problems. So we went to Smithsonian's National Zoo, and we simulated or replicated this curler experiment. We didn't hang bananas above their reach, but we strung up a sort of a clothesline out of wire and shot out um, tree limbs baited with tasty fruit that they would eat. And what we did was we put boxes that they could that they could stack and sticks and, and Well, what we saw was that this elephant never picked up a stick again. Didn't even bother. He could have taken a stick with his trunk and reached for it. He never did it. But what he did instead was he went for the block, and he, which was much more there was much more effort involved in this. He pushed the block right under, got up on the block, and got his trunk where the fruit was. And it it was interesting, and he continued to do that. We gave him repeated trials where we hid the block, we moved the block, he had to search for the block. Once he got it, he got it. He could solve the problem. But if we had only given him sticks, he may never have shown that. Well, let's think about this. So an elephant's trunk is a really cool sensory organ. First of all, their optimal vision, their best visual acuity is at the end of the trunk. They have two little points that we call fingers that can pick up something as thin as a dime so they can see, touch, smell with this great, it's not a tool, because it's part of their body. And what they needed to do, perhaps, is get this cool sensory organ up where the food was. And the stick would have shut off their ability to touch the food, smell the object, and perhaps their visual acuity. Again, it was our thinking in these past experiments where we only gave them sticks, and they didn't do what we do. So again, I think there's a lesson to be learned in some of that. Maybe think more like an elephant, if we can, if we're going <laughs> to test them. <laughs>
4: well, I mean, we, we saw that with the insightful string pulling. So this is a study, this was a, developed by um, Bernd Heinrich for work with crows and ravens. And what you do is you have a perch and you put a really long string with a tasty treat on the bottom. And he showed this to the ravens and the ravens sort of flew over and looked at it and flew back and flew over and looked at it. And then again, without any trial and error, reached down, grabbed the, the string with his beak, pulled it up, clumped his foot on it and basically reeled it in. Crows weren't so good at this. So we thought, hey, we got these brilliant parrots. Let's try this. Well, it turned out that the parrots in our lab that had not yet learned to speak did extremely well on this. I mean, they, they looked at it. It took them, you know, 10 seconds or so. They figured it out. The ones that did speak, Alex and Griffin, looked at it, looked at us and went, go pick up nut.
7: LAUGHTER now language
4: as a tool. that's language is a tool, but had we done it only with our older, more intelligent parrots, we would have said they can't figure out how to do the task. But it wasn't that they couldn't. it was like. That's not, uh, you know, we don't do physical work. You know, we know how to manipulate you to do it.
6: Well, that actually reminds me a lot of the comparison between wolves and dogs because on a string-pulling task where um, a string, uh, the researchers create this convoluted apparatus where there's essentially a box which holds um, meat and there's a string which can open the door. Um, and wolves and dogs will learn to pull the string to open the door, they both will use their mouth. But then they, the researchers make it an impossible task, in other words, they jimmy it so that it won't open if you pull the string. And wolves will go at this task, you know, until they wreck the cage. You know, they'll go at it until they're, you know, they're bleeding from their gums. Dogs start to pull at it, it's not opening, they pull at it and they stop and look at the handler, or the person. <laughs> Uh, we're sort of the tool who solves the problem for the dogs. And the question is, which is more intelligent? The wolves with their persistence, that's useful in their environment, or the dogs with their using us, who have hands and brains, which can solve that pro- problem?
8: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question. My question is this. If the dog... if the If the elephant has a certain kind of intelligence, if the dog has a certain kind of intelligence, humans, are they all limited, and why? Why is it that the human intelligence seems unlimited? Why has it grown to the point it's grown? So I have my own views on this, which I'll I'll say a tiny bit about, but why is the the intelligence that we see in elephants not gonna go beyond where it is? It's interesting, your example, Diana, because it's almost like the example with the Elephant and the trunk is is sort of an example of embodied cognition. We're applying the stick to an elephant, but it doesn't it doesn't deal with sticks. Whereas chimpanzees like sticks, you know. Um, Humans have
5: just to say one thing: they do use sticks as tools to rub themselves to pry open things, where they don't have to smell and get to them. But they in this case it wouldn't necessarily facilitated sense maybe.
8: But what I want to know is why is it that the uh, the elephant intelligence doesn't go beyond that, and what happened to human intelligence that somehow led beyond, I, I believe it's related to the physical design. I believe that the upright design was sort of the, kind of like a breakthrough design that allowed um, human intelligence to evolve in, in a completely different way and lead to an expansion of the brain, a whole set of different behaviors. But I wonder if the, if, uh, if the elephant design doesn't allow further, Development in that direction. Actually,
4: I'd, I'd like to twitch it in a different way. I think symbolic representation is one of the critical issues here, because we've we've done some studies with our birds on number competence. And by giving them, I mean, they don't have language the way you and I have language. I couldn't have put Alex on the table here, and we couldn't have had the conversation we we're having. Okay, But he had symbolic representation, and my other birds do too. And they can do numerical tasks that animals without symbolic representation cannot do at all. All right, And this seems to be an incredible difference. And of course, we've given these birds a symbolic representation. They, whatever symbolic representation they have in the wild seems to be much more limited. Okay? But that, to me, seems to be an incredible difference. And to me, it seems to be that, that for humans, we've kind of ratcheted things up by using you know, symbolics and then thinking things, using the symbols to think things through and then getting more complicated symbols, et cetera, et cetera.
3: So I guess the, the question is when when does a difference in quantity become a difference in quality, and or does that ever happen? So um, I mean, these I, I don't think anybody would deny that human intelligence is in some ways further developed than virtually any other intelligence on the planet, maybe um, or close to, or it's near the top, or whatever way you want to put it. Um, but but is it different? Is it fundamentally different in some way, in this discontinuous way, or are we just looking at a kind of a quantum leap, a gap? I mean, I'm I'm am personally, philosophically against the idea of a discontinuity because that immediately invokes magic sauce of some sort or another, special sauce. That that I mean, assuming we all believe that that mentality of all sorts is basically physically embodied in this thing called the brain and the rest of the nervous system then if you think human intelligence is different than other animals intelligence then it has to be because we have some special sauce which i don't think is the case so i'm a kind of a no miracles kind of person (laughs) in that sense so it so it can't be totally discontinuous and yet you're absolutely right that you can't fool yourself into believing that it's perfectly continuous either in, in some just tiny incremental way. So it's an interesting question. I mean, where are the differences? And I think there are differences not only between, say, elephants and humans or chimps and humans or dolphins and humans, whatever you want to consider the next best thing to us or something like that in some scale. But there are differences all the way through the animal kingdom where there are these jumps that may look discontinuous, but are not. They're just using the same stuff for different purposes, for new purposes, perhaps.
5: Did you ever have, oh, I thought you were. But we do questions after. Oh, okay, I know. So, I guess is that? No no, 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 not yet,
0: okay. There'll,
2: there'll be a and a Q&A session. Uh, but that's a, a, what you are saying is uh, that human intelligence evolves but that animal intelligence doesn't evolve. Am I understanding the question correct? That well, humans are more intelligent today than they were 5,000 years ago, but the elephant is the same.
8: Well, that's hard to say. We don't I'm know that. I'm not sure if we we're more intelligent than 5,000 years ago, um, but there's something that happened in the human design that led to such, so many different faculties, so many different faculties arose with hominids. Now, you could say that that's part, just as circumstantial, you have an animal that's upright, <clears throat> capable of using their hands in a way that, you know, their forelimbs in a way that no other animal can, and all of a sudden, because of that, they were, you know, they were capable of new behaviors. And one of them is simply eating differently. Maybe that alone could account for the change in the size of the brain. And yet, the question I ask myself, just studying anatomy, is, is an area that I'm interested, in. I've been interested in for a long time. What is why is it that it seems that just being upright is associated with being more conscious? To me, there's some so almost like a like a qualitative uh, connection. I mean, you know, Jane Goodall used to say that she felt that chimpanzees were capable of uh, awe, you know, certain certain pretty unusual emotions. She said she believed that. We, I'm not sure that's true, but she believed that a chimpanzee seen. A new uh, beautiful setting that they could look and and experience some kind of emotion, it seems to me that in primates something happened where going the, the mere fact of being upright seems to decouple thinking from motor function, not in the sense that Stuart and I t- uh, Stewart was mentioning how motor function is the basis of so much complexity in cognition, and I, and I completely agree <clears throat> but I'm not saying that motor function separates from cognition functionally, but it's as if in the human motor system, cognition begins to find a separate a way of operating separately from motor action. So that, as far as I know, I, and I could be wrong. I, I, I don't. I'm not an expert in animal, uh, you know, cognition. But as far as I know, animals. Almost all, I, 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 could be, I could stand corrected just from what you said, Diana, but so many animals, when you see them thinking, their thinking is linked with movement. So a dog that sees prey, it may stop and look at the prey and lose interest and walk away. But even when it's stopped, it either loses interest or it's calculating how to get the prey. It never seems to move independently of the action. It's like it's one one operating system. But a human being could do something in my view that's unique. Whereas a human which is a human being can sit and look at a piece of food and deliberate whether they want the food and say, "Oh, I'm not even sure. <laughs> you think you it know, don't, okay, <laughs> you're going to say a bird can do it."
4: We uh, Griffin
8: passed the marshmallow test. Well, Mich- I want to hear you know, it. Michelle's
4: marshmallow test. Yeah. Um, you know, waits 15 minutes. We can give him, he has a nut in front of him. We show him if you wait for the nut, wait, you'll get a skittle, which he loves much more. And I'll sit there for 15 minutes. And he does the same behavior patterns as the kids do. He pushes the nut away. He turns around and he starts preening so he doesn't have to look at it. He tries to fall asleep. I mean, he, he starts talking to himself and muttering things to himself and things.
6: It's... You know, it easily, Same
5: type of thing, just training. I actually, but this was not trained. Our dog, I have it on video. Our dog does it. We have a share dog. Um, and we did this one day. I put a, a treat down there and I said, Just stay in the sense of training. And what the videos you showed me, I mean, we didn't do a whole systematic study. We have a big Newfoundland, and he's looking at it and he looks at me and he looks at the thing, he looks away. It's like. He looks, finally, he just, he's like really trying everything, and then he finally leaves, and then he comes back, and he, you know, similar kinds of things. We see this interesting similar these similarities in patterns. I think animals, you know, I think the constraint you think we have. You, I, mean, I do, do think, you think they're thinking. thinking I mean, we've, yeah. had, we've yeah. had situations where, okay, so
4: this is, this is my favorite Alex study. So he was trained to use the word none for the absence of similarity and difference. So you could take any two things out of your pocket and say what's same, what's different, and he'd say color, shape, matter or none, if nothing were same or different. So we're now doing a number comprehension study. He's already at the point where you can put a tray out with red and blue balls and blocks. So you've got four sets of things mixed in, and say you know how many blue blocks, and he'll tell you. So now we got to do comprehension. So there's three, four, and six things on the tray, and we've already had like a dozen trials where you say you know what color six, and he says blue, because the block. There are six blue blocks on the tray. So now I come in with, the three, with you know this set of things. And I say, Alex, what color three? And he looks at me and he goes, five. There's no five things on the tray. Now usually when he doesn't want to work, he takes his beak and whacks everything off on the floor, or turns around and starts preening. But he's giving me a number, or he gives me all the wrong colors. So if the colors on the tray are red, blue, and green, he says purple, orange, and you know, yellow and stuff. So, but now he's giving me this number. So come on, Alex, you know, what color three? Five. Finally, I go, okay, Smarty, what color five? And he looks at me, and goes, none. (laughs) So not only did he, you know, use none as a zero-like concept, which we in the West didn't do till the 1600s, but he figured out how to manipulate me into asking the question he wanted to answer.
8: But he's using language, that's interesting. I mean, that, the, yeah. In that case, he seems like he's using language uh, but, in a meaningful uh, oh, way. I'm I'm just a quick aside, are you training
3: this bird to be a synesthete? <laughs> <laughs> can you train
7: synesthesia?
5: <laughs> Go on, I'm, no, I'm just. I just wanted to follow up with something, because Irene, you you also talked told me these some anecdotes. I mean, a lot of what happens to us is we see it, something happen once. It. Yeah, you know, and make we, it into an experiment. The, the, into, yeah. But you told me a series of things similar to this where you were te- where you, with Alex when he chewed up your paper and you yelled at him. And then can you talk to, because this says a lot. It's I mean, similar to what well, you just talked about. He had actually, had gone out of the room and
4: he had dropped a, I think this is the sorry one. Okay, So he had managed to climb off his perch and he smashed a coffee cup. And I come back into the room, and there is this bird in this midst of shattered crockery. And, like, you know, I have to say, I, I was really careful not to anthropomorphize and to, to try to be a scientist. But I come in, and it's this instinct of going, <gasps> you know, the danger thing. If you came into your, the room and you saw your child on the floor with shattered crockery, saying, How could you do that? Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you start, and then all of a sudden you realize, you know, this is not useful. So I, and I realize he's, you're, and not just I'm talking to a bird, he's scared, because this thing has been made a huge noise, and there's all this stuff around here. And he's looking at me, and I pick him, I say, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. You know, and then he learned to use this. There was no contrition necessarily, but he figured out that if he, said, if he was being yelled at for something and he said, I'm sorry, in this little pathetic voice, it completely you know, took down our anger levels. So it was again a way of learning how to manipulate us using Speech.
5: He learns the function yeah. of it. He may not yeah. know what it means, but right. he learns how. But again, it how many of you have significant
4: streams. others who you know say "I'm sorry" all the time, and there's no contrition? So you
5: know, I mean,
6: you know, with a dog.
4: <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to kind of uh, attach to that a little bit, which was the study I did on dogs and whether they have, a, um, or well, they do have a guilty look, but whether it indicates that they. Experience guilt. But to me, it highlights an interesting kind of tension that is, uh, is coming up here, which is sort of do they have some emotional experience which indicates that they have the complexity of mind that we do and are maybe ruminating on what's been about to happen or did happen or are they just an instinctive actor or is there some manipulation going on? Like, And so in the study that I did, I just looked at whether this guilty look that dogs show, which is, you know, you might know it if you have a dog, right? If With the head down and the tail under the body and maybe moving away from you actually indicates that they're experiencing something like guilt or whether it arises from some other prompt. And so I did a little study where I asked, um, I went to owner's homes, which is a really nice thing about dealing with dogs instead of um, elephants. And uh, I asked the owners to be involved in this study and they put a treat in front of their dog, told their dog not to eat it, left the room. Um, and we just sort of saw what happened next. Um, If they ate the treat, I called the owners back in the room and said they ate it and they were asked to scold their dogs. If they didn't eat the treat, I called the owners back in the room and I said they were obedient and they just greet their dogs happily like you do when you come back from the other room. But of course it's a psychology experiment so I misled the owners in half the trials. So sometimes when the dog was obedient, I said actually they ate the treat and so they'd be scolded. It was very deceptive, and sometimes when the dog was disobedient, (laughs) sometimes when the dog was disobedient, they got away with it. I said they didn't need the treat, and so they were greeted. And then I just, you know, taped how much what the dog was doing in each of these conditions. And what was clear, 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 is that they showed guilty look. You know, a little bit of guilty look all the time, but they showed most guilty look um, not when they were actually guilty of having disobeyed their owner and eating the treat. It was when the owner scolded them. right? So You could say a lot of things about that. You could say dogs don't feel guilt. I don't think I can say that based on that. But certainly when we think, based on that look, that we're getting some access into their minds, that seems to be a disconnect. On the other hand, what is that reaction? It's probably a reaction to the unlearned behavior, kind of like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. To avoid punishment by the owner, so is that kind of more intelligent? is it more clever is it, it certainly is it less like us i don 't know we 're manipulative
5: as well
2: you have, right? you have the
5: you know the tail head OK, I'll tell the fish story. Yes. This is like the big fish story. So um, I was I a was graduate student. I was doing my PhD, and I was working with this young dolphin who I was, asked, I was asked to teach her to station, which means the dolphin stays in front of you as long as you have a bucket on the side of a pool. And she had been caught from the wild, which I am saying this publicly, we shouldn't be taking dolphins and whales from the wild. Okay, This was a long time ago when people still did it. And um, she was a young dolphin, and I had to teach her to station. So I handed these big mackerels to to mackerel fish, which are like this big. The dolphin's head's this big. And I cut the fish up into three sections, heads, middles, and tails, thinking it would be easier for her to eat, and it would give me more fish to work with. And she ate the heads. She ate the middle sections. She spit out every tail I gave her. So I looked at it. I thought, well, maybe it's the fins that are. You know, she doesn't like. So I cut the fins off and I fed her the fish and she ate everything. So I I make the joke who trained who here? You know, she's now trained me to prepare her fish. Anyway, Circe was a smart dolphin, and she had learned to station within a day or so. And I'm feeding her, and everything's fine. But in the course of me training her to station, if she didn't stay with me, I would use a correction procedure, um, and I would back away from the pool 10 to 15 feet, and I'd just stand there and stare at her. And she'd watch me. And then that was my way of letting her know she did the wrong thing. It was breaking social contact, and she couldn't get more fish. I'd come back. It seemed to work and she learned to stay if she didn't want me to back up. Everything's going fine. It's two or three or four days down the line. And by this time now, I throw her. She's stationing perfectly. One day I threw her an uncut tail by mistake. She looks up at me. She spits the fish out, and she makes a beeline for the other side of the pool, and takes a horizontal position and just stands there, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, can, can this possibly be very much like what you talked about with Alex? And I'm thinking. Is she really using this timeout back on me? It was a timeout, I forgot to tell you that. So now, this is an anecdote, and you're not going to write this one up in a paper. And I was working on my doctoral thesis at the time, and I, you know, so I thought, but wait a minute, maybe I can make this into an experiment. So what I did was I was really careful over the next couple of sessions to cut all the fish right, and she stayed with me the whole time. But then a couple days later, on purpose, I gave her another uncut tail to see and don't you know it bum across the side of the pool she does the timeout again and she did this on three other occasions over the course of the next weeks i love this story because first of all it was the experiment the dolphin gave me she was a complete collaborator on this and it just goes to show you to me what's the essence of communication and how it develops and as a graduate student that was my field bioacoustics and communication is when children learn when we're when we're Interacting with our pets at home or animals that we're working with in in labs or the field, there's this mutual synthesis of behavior, synchrony of behavior. We don't know what the other is, what what's in the head of another. You open any communication textbook, there the meaning is not in the message; it's in here, it's in our interpretation. And what true communication, in my mind, is about is how we synchronize our behavior patterns, how it functions. I'll give you one more example. Um, Gregory Bateson. Many of you have heard of Gregory Bateson and a communication theorist, he talked about the fact that his son and his wife and he, I think it was Margaret Mead he was married to at the time, traveled to South America. His child didn't know any Spanish, and they were unpacking their luggage, and his child went out onto the street, and he and his wife look out on the street. They're amazed to see their kid playing f- kickball or football in the street, and every so often they hear him yelling, "Aqui, aki, and the ball gets thrown to the child. And you know, he's using it. And the kid comes back up into the the hotel room. And Bateson says, how did you learn that so fast? How did you learn what a key meant? He goes, I don't know what it meant. I just saw how it worked. When anybody yelled a key, they got the ball. And I think that's very much what Circe did. She learned the function. And I think that is really how we start to communicate. And I think, Alex, I mean, I think you know when you probably talk to people about their dogs and ask how many of you think they're communicating, they say, yeah, we communicate with our pets, because we do. They're learning our patterns, we're learning their patterns. It may not mean the same thing, but there's some s- synchronization and pattern behavior that develops, so.
3: I just wanted to go back, if it's okay, for a moment to the question that, that Ed asked of, of you and and, you, and your idea that, that humans somehow or another have developed a, a, dif- a slightly different kind or a, a more advanced kind of intelligence and whether or not we would think that was true of humans 5,000 years ago, whether they were smarter. and I. F- I'd like to suggest that actually...
2: Related question would be,
3: if Alex is the parrot, if Alex
2: has children, are the children smarter than other
4: parrots? Well, he didn't have children. <laughs> um, and what happened was, he, when we had another little bird in the lab, he was so aggressive That he would dominate this little bird and interrupt all of his sessions. And, you know, Griffin learned some things from Alex, but Alex did not want to teach him. It was only towards the end of his life that we figured out how to get Alex to see that he would get a lot more attention if he helped teach Griffin. But that was the end of his life. But, um, you know, I mean... I'm sorry, But it's an an interesting question. And the funny thing is is that we now have a little female, so there's no aggression. And that was one of the reasons we got a female, to see if Griffin's going to teach
5: her. But to add to your question, I think, if we look across other animal societies, like elephants, dolphins, uh, dogs, I'm sure, as well, many animals, dolphins, um, we see that there is what we think is growing evidence for cultural transmission. and. Yeah, but but learning through observation. What are you talking about?
3: I'm actually, this is sort of, in spite of cultural transmission, I mean, I think, Ted, I think if you were here 5,000 years ago, you would have the same low opinion of humans that you have of elephants. Because for 5,000 years, they frickin' did nothing, frankly. I mean, the Bronze Age went on for 2,000 years. Fifty generations of people were born, grew up, and died in precisely the same technology. I mean, it's not like it is today. Today is different, I agree. Since the enlightenment, something has changed, but that can't clearly be evolution because there's not enough time. I mean, now, if you go away for a holiday for two weeks, you come back and your operating system's out of date. I don't know, everything is wrong. You're not like part of it anymore, you know? You're hopelessly behind. But I mean, there were long, long stretches of time while we were upright and had this very same brain we had now when Kind of nothing much happened when we didn't really develop anything of any particular value and just kept beating the crap out of each other in little tribes, which we still do, in fact. So
5: technologically <laughs> advanced, but it is an interesting issue: is why us, why us with technology? What stopped? Uh, yeah,
3: that's a discontinuity. I agree, but it's not an evolutionary one or a physical one or maybe even one of cognition. I mean, it, it's a discontinuity of. I don't know, it's a certain kind of thinking that may have been quite accidental. It's not as though science didn't start a whole bunch of times and then petered out. The Greeks had science, but then it kind of stopped. After all, the Arabs had a very, you know, flourishing science, and it that kind of didn't, didn't continue in a way. So, so far, we have one that continues, and I think that's in many ways what we refer to when we, I mean, not just science, physics, and all that, but a scientific Frame of mind is what we refer to as a kind of a modern mind, and to me, that is different than that's what gives us, I think, the impression that we're different than so many other animals or co inhabitants
5: think about the the fossil record for certain other species. I'm only going to talk about dolphins. It's the only one I really feel comfortable talking about that I know anything about. But, you know, there's evidence that over time uh, their their brains got larger and the bodies remained somewhat smaller. So brain size has increased. There's always the... Dolphins, cetaceans, dolphins and whales. There's always the constraint of, with mammals, they have to be able to pass through a pelvic bone. But the brains are large and complex and they've increased in size over time. So that's interesting. Again, they can those they, those brains you know the overall bodies of these guys are pretty big, and they 're in an aquatic environment, so perhaps they 're less constraints that way and then also you have arguments that you know depending on the the, um, the fluidity that a, that animals have, for example, elephants and dolphins have been. And humans are considered by many to show the highest levels of social cognition. There's some papers that have come out recently. And some of that's really been attributed to, um, you know, fluidity in these groups and things like that. So there are all sorts of different ways of thinking about intelligence and how we measure it. And and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Ed,
8: go ahead. No, 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 no.
6: I, I'm, I am a little stuck on the fact that I, I don't, maybe I just disagree with everyone else here that, we, that there is just like a linear progression that man is at, humans are at the ACME. I just, I actually don't believe that. Well, I mean, I don't... Do I'm, it, well, how do you feel? Do you, you mean, feel there is a... It, as opposed, I don't necessarily mean there have to be multiple intelligences. I don't, I'm not sure that I love the word intelligence to describe what any animal is doing, including the human animal. But I, I'm, I guess I'm more ethologically driven. I'm interested in how the animal is fitting into its environment. And if the question is, Maybe it's about success, you know. I mean, are humans going to survive for? I don't know if we're going to survive for another 150 years, but there might be plenty of animals who do. So, are they then the the acme of biological, yeah. you know, of of neural, neurally founded organisms? Yeah. To me, I'm st- I feel like it's a yeah. very sometimes it-
4: your squirrels, you know, get through the bird feeder that you've tried right. every single yeah. conceivable way of, you yeah, know. I mean, so. I'm not denying that's <laughs>
6: Type of thing than we see other animals doing, so there are things which we seem to do alone. That, that I absolutely assent to. But I find the kind of complexities of other animals' behavior to be as radical. And the fact that we can't go into their minds and say what they're doing in those moments when they seem to be doing nothing doesn't mean to me that they're doing nothing. It seems to me that we don't know what they're doing, which is a fault of our mind not of theirs. I'm just, of. Tr- I'm just
8: trying to understand. I thought you, I thought a moment ago you said that you didn't agree with, that you felt that there was a discontinuity. Now now it sounds like you're saying there is. I, I'm I, not I clear on. Weird...
6: I think it's an odd um, way to pose the whole structure. That, there's, that there either has to be a continu- continuum or not because we're at the top of it, right? Like that there's some progression of sophistication of cognition and then the question you seem to be asking is how did we get to the very top of that? that? Is it through some radical thing that yeah. happened or yeah. is it sort of through small changes. Yeah, so and I'm saying, so I don't measure, think we're up at the top at all. Like I think it's sort of messier yeah, right. than that. Uh, because yeah. that's the
3: wrong, that's I mean, right. that's also, we now know that's the completely wrong way to think of evolution. I mean, evolution is not a pyramid. It's a bush. It's a tree. Right, yeah. And there's a plurality. Of, and every, every creature that currently exists is at the top of the evolutionary branch that of it sits upon. Branch. right? Yeah. And so, but it's only, I think you're absolutely right, it's only when it comes to mentality or cognition that we insist on this more linear idea that continuity no longer means a tree, which is also, I mean, we believe in evolutionary continuity, but it no longer means a plurality of continuities. It means a single one, a single line. Here's the dumbest thing and we're the smartest thing and then everybody has some place along the line, which I think is completely wrong.
4: that we do I mean you know what did you say 90 million years for the dolphin human split 95 okay 280 million for the parrots versus you know our last common ancestor with parrots was the dinosaurs 280 million years ago I mean yet you know I've got this bird that's doing the same thing a five year old can do okay I mean you know and again, we don't know so so many of the things that so there. why
2: do you have to get it to do what a five-year-old can do, and it didn't develop itself the ability to do what a five-year-old
4: can do? Because I gave it I gave it a symbolic representation. Which is what you give your five year old, too. I mean, the five year olds just don't, you know, you don't put the five year olds in a cage and say, here's some food and treats and I'll come back in five years and see what you've done. Um, you know, I mean, we give it a symbolic well, how, how representation. We
2: gave our five year old symbolic representations and parrots didn't.
4: Well, we don't. You know, the interesting thing is with all of these animals is that we are just beginning to understand their communication systems, and that's a whole nother. Totally, another game plan here is that I mean, we've been you know for birdsong, we've been studying birdsong since the '60s, and we're just now because we got so much better equipment, okay, being able to start to te- just really start to tease apart what they're doing when they're sitting out there. You know, it sounds like just pretty song to us, but we're beginning to learn that there's so much more complexities in there, and that each song has a different. I don't want to say exactly meaning. Because then you think of it as as meaning like a la- like our language, but each song has a different effect on the recipient, and the recipient responds in a different way, depending on which song it 's heard i mean they 're marsh wrens we used to call it marsh wren poker, okay because the bird would each bird has like fifty songs and they have them in different orders, and the birds know not only their fifty songs orders but their neighbor 's fifty songs orders, and they 'll match them and raise them one. Okay, so you, know, you, you sing your 47, and I'll go, I'm gonna sing your 48, but that's my 32. But I know it's your 48, so I'm gonna match you and raise you one <laughs> to tell you that I want, you know, your, your elbow is getting too close into my territory here. I mean, these are things we're just beginning to learn, so I'm, I'm never gonna argue that their communication systems are as rich and as varied as ours. I'm, at this point, it's not clear that they can sit there and tell you what they did yesterday. Okay. <laughs> right, depends on us, too. But, um, so. but, but the issue is that it, it, is, it is more complicated than we thought. And I don't think, the one thing I'm sure of is that I couldn't have mapped whatever English I did onto Alex's abilities if there wasn't some basic cognitive architecture there. I mean, if he didn't have some kind of innate, innate quote-unquote, sense of same and different, I couldn't have
5: mapped English terms of same and different onto it. And that's a really critical point. I think it's what we're all sort of saying. You know, again, we're pretty blind and deaf to what they can do. We can't decode. We don't have that magic decoder hat or ring with these guys. We can't
4: yeah. see in the UV. Right. I mean, we have the scent, our sense system compared to a dog's. There's like we're such primitive idiots. I mean.
3: So, so I mean, the problem is the one of us. Sort of a something that we would all <coughs> claim that we're against, but which we're all participating in if we're not careful, which is a kind of an anthropocentrism, right? But this kind of anthropocentrism doesn't, doesn't give other creatures human-like qualities. It's just the opposite. It uses humans as the only way to measure anything. You, right, so instead of looking talking? at a plurality of cognitive abilities, a plurality of cognitions, a plurality of consciousness, all the things brain tissue can do, in whatever vehicle it happens to be running around the planet in, that seems to me to be a much more interesting kind of pursuit than worrying about how to classify this stuff in uh, on a, on a scale in which humans, you know, sort of denote the top level and some bug the bottom level or something it's a
4: pity
8: like that. We don't have an octopus. Okay, let me, let yeah. me. I want to say something to challenge this idea because I don't. The reason why the. Apart from the question of what's actually true about what happens in human evolution, I've had the experience very often when I let's say give a talk on, on anatomy, when I when someone speaks up in a group and says, you know, um, we're really uh, we're really not. I've had people say this to me in a group in a. In a in a seminar we're really not like monkeys you know we really have no connection to monkeys and it turns out that they have very religious creationist kind of view people will often side with darwin and say and and very you know sort of come up to me later on and say you know wow we don't believe in that we're we're no different than animals we're part of the animal kingdom but i've also had the experience on the flip side that if I say to a group of people, you don't really think that the law of natural selection explains what's happened with the emergence of complex life forms, particularly the human life form, which, by the way, I have no trouble at all saying is unique for various reasons. And I think in the same way that we don't understand birds, I don't think we understand all the human faculties either. But when I say that flip side of it, people will often say, you're right, I don't believe it. And I found that to be the same, the same group will go both ways. In other words, our, our lived beliefs are, often don't reflect our intellectual beliefs. Our intellectual belief in natural selection is often not people's lived belief. And I want to know why, because the fact is that we all, why is it that, yes, I agree, birds uh, can do things we didn't dream of 100 years ago. But why is it that? that a six-year-old can often outstrip what any bird can do. Why? What happened in humans to make them so smart? What,
5: you can yeah, well, so.
8: well i'm not i'm not when i say this and i don't can, well
5: six and birds can do things that six year olds well, yeah, yeah, cannot do flying i don't mean to say that when i say this i don't mean to
8: say that humans are better in every respect than animals i'm not that's not my point of view i mean they i mean darwin remarked that the, the instincts of bees were as wonderful as human intelligence and i love that comment he say he was darwin loved the animal kingdom he 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 sort of almost worshiped it I agree with that. I think cats, we have three cats, and I think they're unbelievable. And they're far more sensitive than the humans in my home in many ways. So I'm not saying humans are just somehow better in every respect. But with respect to the question of decoupled cognitive functions, something has happened in humans that hasn't happened with any other species. And my question is, why? Does natural selection explain it? I think it only explains a part of it. It can't explain all of it, and one of the reasons why natural selection can't explain all of it is because natural selection as a proposition already presupposes life, and a proposition that includes something like, in this case, life as part of the proposition can't explain something presupposed in the proposition. Natural selection sounds like an abstract principle, but it isn't. It's a principle that says, hey, if they're, if they're a mating pair of birds that create, that create you know four birds every year, and the population of birds in a given area, assuming there are no incoming and outgoing birds, remains the same, that means every year two out of four of the birds are dying. Why? It's just a simple randomness principle that you know, the ones that are let, less fit for their environment die, and the ones that are slightly more. It's a randomness principle, but it presupposes life, and life is already moving toward a higher organization. No, the no, question no, no, no. is that's why? That's completely yeah. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well. You go first. That's so I'm
3: sorry. So, one of the things that evolution was and it, natural selection.
8: Is, before before <laughs> you answer, I, I would like to hear from everyone on this question, not just told them wrong, okay? Okay. So
3: I would just say that I think one of, the, one of the common errors about evolution and natural selection is that it's an optimization procedure, that it's optimizing everything that's the, the best that there is and will continue to improve, that, it, that it's an improvement program, and that's just simply not the case. That's why 99.9% of the species that have ever existed on the planet are currently extinct. So it's not very good at optimizing at all. There's an old joke about this, which is a science joke, so it's not going to be funny. So don't don't plan on laughing or anything. But two scientists are out camping one night in the woods, you know, and it's late at night, and all of a sudden a bear begins to sort of attack the tent and rattle the tent all that night. Both jump up, what are we going to do? And one of them starts putting his sneakers on, tying his sneakers on. The other one says, "What are you tying your sneakers on for? You can't outrun a bear." He says, "I just have to outrun you." so you know right so evolution is only optimized to outrun each other so the other guy is the meal not the eater of the of the person so, so yeah this is a better joke than i thought <laughs> um, i didn't make it up so um so, so I think that. So I think you will. I, I just think you have to be careful not to get on there. So I, in some ways, agree with you. Say,
8: I didn't say evolution is optimizing anything. I, no. In fact, you, you might even have a better species than humans that doesn't get selected next year. I mean, theoretically, because natural selection doesn't allow it. I'm not saying natural selection as a principle isn't operating. I'm saying it doesn't explain the whole question of how life... is. So in that sense, I I
3: agree with you, because it's not an optimization thing. It has nothing to do with optimization. I mean, the fact that we're able to have this round table and smart enough to talk and all the rest of this kind of stuff. could just be some, probably likely is for sure, some huge accident. It's a good one so far. I mean, we don't really know how well it's going to work out in the end or, I mean, surely we'll be extinct one day. Everything else is. Why wouldn't we be? So I'm, I'm just suggesting in some ways I'm actually supporting what you're saying. I wouldn't use evolution to explain a scale of intelligence. I wouldn't use it actually to explain a scale of anything. So in that sense, I agree with you. I just...
2: Are you saying there's no, so I think it's a straw there's man. No I guess arrow direction in evolution, yeah. or there is. Yes, that's so right. what's the purpose of no, that arrow direction? Oh, there is. There is, is no, arrow. no arrow of direction. So I'm saying it's a
8: sort of a straw man, man
3: argument. That's all. I'm. I'm
8: my only I'm point my, is. That I don't I'm, believe evolution has an arrow either, but I believe life. Itself pushes toward organization. And I know that's controversial, but the fact is that when you allow people to say, well, you know, it does kind of appear, it, this isn't to say that species don't disappear. There have been other, there, there seems to have been a species, an upright hominid, that had a larger brain than us, that didn't make it. So it's not as if somehow a big brain animal was meant to appear. I'm not even su- suggesting that. It doesn't. Everything we've talked about today, however, is based on vertebrates, I mean, most of our discussion. And why is it that vertebrates uh, go, go to No, I know. I'm not, I, cephalopods are amazing. But cephalopods are, are not going to go past the design template that, that's allowed them. I think some cephalopods appear to be incredibly smart in ways that we, I don't think we should eat oct- an octopus. I think they seem to me to be too smart. And I don't like to eat animals that are that smart. Um, <laughs> But, I, but they have a design that isn't going is, to go past the, what their design allows. In the same way, I think that a bird design can't go past what a bird design Wait, allows. Well,
6: how but can humans, you say that you don't know where the octopus design is going to go?
8: Yeah. Well, been, because it's not, it, as far as I can tell, I mean, I'm no ex, expert on, on an octopus, but as far as I know, um, the, the design can't. It can't morph. It can't somehow get bones. We haven't seen an octopus appear. Didn't
6: we come Why out of the water, you... basically?
8: Well, no. What but do we t- look
6: like in the water?
8: No, but an octopus has gone in a particular line of evolution. It can't go the backwards far... and pick up bones. I'm just saying. No,
6: but well, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I disagree. This, this I don't think so that's odd. the case. I mean, it, certainly it's been the way it is for quite a period of time. But there's nothing that foundationally, biologically, is against it. It evolving into something slightly different. There are lots
4: of genes that, don't, that are there. That you know, there's a there's a pile of stuff that sits around and will only get ex, you know expressed under certain conditions. But- I mean, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the Darwin's finches things,
5: where you start switching things right. around, and then they'll change, and back and forth. I mean, the and octopi that actually walk sometimes on two of their you know, legs, arms, and you could see bipedal. where bipedal. And you could see under certain circumstances that could be selected for. There might be advantages and things. I mean, I, I think we have to be really careful about saying where animals can, how they can, and can or cannot can change, and really the whole is. epigenetic thing. Mm-hmm
3: what it looks like in the case of human cognition or human mental abilities is there's something has gone faster than you could explain by evolution. Something has developed that you can't simply use an evolutionary explanation for because there wouldn't have been enough time in a way. And I I mean, I kind of agree with you. My only concern is I feel like it's a straw man argument.
8: I'm not quite quite saying that. I'm saying that natural selection alone doesn't explain it. Yeah, I also, but, so
3: I was a little concerned. So what do you mean by life? Tries to get better, or so. What did you say, say exactly? What, what did you say exactly about living matter does something?
8: You, it, it sounded is, like it had
3: a point to it. Well, ver-
8: <laughs> well you know, we, we, I, it sounds nice when you're using a when we speak when we talk the language of science. It sounds you know we have a sort of seem to have a preference for sort of arguments about randomness, or and we tend to get cynical and say, well, human beings at 30, everything deteriorates. Uh, you know, we're not really meant to be here. Uh, we're we're sort of meant to die off, and we keep our old elders alive because it seems more civilized. And it's sort of the cynical language. I don't buy it. I don't think that's really what what's going on with humans. I, I think with vertebr- vertebrates are what they are, and intelligence has developed because they express a level of complexity that you don't find in other animals. I mean, an animal with a with an external skeleton can't. Uh, I, I'm, again i 'm no expert on insects, but an animal with an exoskeleton to, sort of is a, a dead end in, in terms of design, but the vertebrate design was so f- with the internal skeleton the internal skeleton, the musculature on the outside going onto to land was such a flexible design that it allowed a whole you know like a book of marvels it allowed all these different animals to emerge, which we 're looking at, and we 're one of them um, and that is based on the complex multi-celled uh, design that we have. How does life push in that direction? Why does it push in that direction? It's got organization. Life. We haven't understood what makes life what it is. And one of the properties seems to me is that it, it is self-organizing. And it pushes toward different ways of organizing itself. I, I guess and it's I know scientists don't that like I that. but. Um that hmm. I can't really understand
3: as a, as a useful explanation. Well, it's, it's, I, I just can't but understand it as a useful explanation. Way. It looks that way. Yeah, but you don't defy the second law of thermodynamics. I don't care who you are. <laughs> I don't care how, you, how great you think we are. None of us defies the second law of thermodynamics. I'm sorry. What's remarkable about us is that we figured out there's a second law of thermodynamics. That I will admit to you. That's one of the most remarkable bits of mentation I've, I can ever imagine. But but you don't get away with it. That's like biblical second law of thermodynamics. You know, you don't mess with that. I, I just don't think there's any indication that we ever get
8: away with it. I, why? If, if life is, if there's only entropy, if things are only, d- how is it, that we're all sitting here and can maintain our organized life forms in such a high level, because even... We're using up the planet to do it. <laughs> that's how we do it.
0: We use perhaps, up the planet, which perhaps, is fine. I'm not even against perhaps.
3: that necessarily. But, you know, well, I mean, within reason, I suppose. Well, but we, but in not point not of fact, that's how we do it. You over
6: know. the course of our life and the species itself could fall apart. I mean, we're just, we're just a snapshot. I feel like we're very focused in our... Right, we're very provincial in our looking. I mean, of course we're gonna be anthropocentric. We're anthros, like that's, so I think the only thing we can do is be aware of it, but also the temporal provinciality. Like we look right here and we see, you know, we know what's happening right then and maybe what happened yesterday. I mean, actually, that is very narrow. And what is actually happening in the species, or what's actually the case with our species, I think is very hard to say. I don't, I don't want to say it. You know, I think we are probably. I mean, I, I'm more of a believer in physics than biology there. We're falling apart. <laughs> Falling apart.
8: apart. (laughs) When I say there's organization, I see some people nodding, and when I say there's disorganization, some people (laughs) nodding. There's another another interesting sort of um, area of of psychology,
4: which I don't know that much about. But it really is, again, a context-dependent thing, which means the way you phrase a particular question affects the kind of answer you get. And I'm wondering if we're dancing around that a little bit, too, so that there's certain ways you say, well, you know, would you, it's a study about it says, you know, there's a certain amount of risk for doing something. You probably know this better than I. And it's like you can say it is that 50% of the people will get this disease. Or you could say, so many people out of a certain number will get this disease. And if you phrase it one way, it's much more positive than the other. You, you, you probably can, can... It's
3: the old Mark Twain thing about there being liars, damn liars,
4: statisticians. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, it's, this whole, it's an entire yeah. subset of psychology that basically, and the, what do you think, in Madison Avenue certainly takes advantage of it. Um, so that there are, there are ways of phrasing certain types of questions, and you have to be very careful about that, too.
1: Well,
3: Yes, I, I mean, I, I think the the danger I think of what Alexandra is saying is that that we ha- we are trapped if we're not very careful in a fairly parochial view of things that's very local, and it's very hard. I mean, this is why pseudoscience is so. It gets purchased so easily because it's very hard not to look that way. It looks, I mean, there's a great story by uh, Wittgenstein, who apparently at some point was walking with a friend and said, uh, you know, it's always amazed me how it took people so long to figure out that the Earth is rotating and the Sun is standing still. And his friend said, well, but Ludwig, you know, it looks that way, doesn't it? And Wittgenstein said, really? Because what would it look like if the Earth were rotating and the Sun were standing still? It looks like what it is, you know. But it does just look that way. And indeed, uh, it's still very hard to figure out why it is the Earth is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour and the, the birds and the clouds aren't being left behind. I mean, really, most people could not tell you how that is. I'm <laughs> not so sure I could in a way that you would believe me. So, so, But it's very easy to have these. I mean, we still all live in a pre-Copernican world. We're real smart folks sitting in this room. And we say, what time is the sun setting? Well, the sun's not setting and it's not rising, you know, but that's the world we live in and and that's the way it goes, you know. We live in a Newtonian world and that's not true either, really, but it serves our purposes. But but you can have these parochial views and believe there's a lot of truth in them and I think that's a potential danger. You have to be covered. You do have to try and expand it a bit as much
6: as you possibly can, it seems to me. That we do who's, who are who are studying animals is give examples of animals doing something which s- seems to us who f- is evidence of a kind of cognition, um, and then maybe somebody will give a counterexample of a person doing something like that, and I, and that's also a way of defining our terms. I mean, we're trying to just get traction in a field where it's actually hard to, to get any funding or anybody to take you seriously when you're dealing with the non-human animals. That's part of it, but also, what if we all just talked about the mistakes that we see animals make or the mistakes that humans make, and had that be defining of what the the species were it, you know we would look very different as people as opposed to looking at our high achievements and being so impressed by our high achievements Probably i'm thinking about all the mistakes i've there. recently made you know <laughs> 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 or, or and that is would that be defining of who of of me as a human being as a member of the species
4: would that be any more indicative maybe of what the human is in species and we talk about, well, you know, no animal is, you know, a Picasso or a Beethoven or an Einstein, but there's only been a Picasso and, you know, I mean, the thing is we look at, at these exceptional individuals and we say, well, humans are capable of this because one or two of these, you know, individuals have done this. But the average person on the street, I mean, you know, I, I can't... Can barely carry a tune, much less, you know, do what Beethoven did. Um, so again, we also have to think about it in those ways that we we put ourselves on this pinnacle, and also being in academia, you know, there's even a stronger chance of this because we hang out with all these elites and and stuff. So this is another thing that we have to think about too. I mean, even the psych studies we talk about now, these students being weird, you know. Upper educated, you know. I mean, it's like we're all—all all the studies we do on, in psychology, they're all on you know college sophomores, okay. And we try to claim that this is representative of the human race. I mean, this is. Insane. You know, I
5: think I think one of the themes I think that's emerging or it's started to emerge in this conversation from the idea of plurality and different ways of thinking is you know again we're the ones talking about it. If you just take a, a really broad look and you look at insect societies, you look at I'll just, I, I keep up dolphins just because I study them these are societies and they're in in every every way, and you look at a dolphin society they they have not altered their environment much they can manipulate it, but their bodies have changed morphologically they've got They've radically streamlined. They're radically streamlined to adapt to their environment, and beautifully so. You you couldn't do much better job. And they continue to change, obviously, as we've seen in the fossil record. Um, And they find ways to coordinate their behavior. They they show exquisite complexity, and they're not destroying their environment. So you know, again, this sort of gets back to you: big brains. Taking care of their young, cooperating, helping others—I mean, that's pretty cool. In, time, in my book, about what uh, what is sort of evolved, and it just hasn't been, hasn't evolved in our way. We have we've taken another route, and we're facing a lot of problems now. Dolphins may be facing other problems we aren't aware of, but um, again, I think we another have
3: extreme example. Mark Moffat, who's a uh, uh, entomologist, a specialist in. Have you ever had him at one of these things? You should have Mark Moffat. Yeah, well, I'll get get him to come over here. He's busy with his ants all the time. but, But Mark points out that there are really only two species on the planet that live in societies that number into the millions, and that are willing to live in a society in which they don't pretty much know within one or two degrees of separation at least everybody in the society. They don't live with strangers. So chimp, troops, and things like that all number under 100, 150. The only two species that are willing to live in vast numbers with strangers all around them. I mean, it's bizarre. We're sitting in a room, like, full of strangers here, right? So, and it's just us and ants. And only certain species of ants. We live in these huge colonies where they just, there's no way they know everybody. But they do it. They're fine with it. And us. Weird, huh? I don't know. Makes you feel creepy. (laughs) 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 One
2: of the uh, reasons why I originally... Uh, brought this subject up with Diana, and then you, Stuart, and and uh, I think um, I think you were also there when we first discussed this. Uh, was f- I was looking at it the other way around? We focused on what animals can do, and animals, or uh, intelligence, and their ability to learn, and so on. Uh, I was also interested the other way around because, with my background in psychoanalysis, so my focus has always been the mind. It has not been on in what ways a lot of things we attribute uh, motivation to are really biologically determined just as they are in animals. And so. Uh, a lot of things we do, uh, let's say similar to what you said, a newborn turns towards the mother's breast and socks on the breast and in psychoanalysis, there is an idea that from Freud that uh, this is a is the beginning of psychosexual development, and there's pleasure attached to it and so on. and so animals do it too. Uh, so my question is. And I wonder if you can say something a little bit about more about that. This excessive focus on the mind in understanding people's behavior is incomplete. And how would understanding animals' behavior more help us understand more human behavior?
5: Can I raise my hand on that one? I'll, so this is something I find really interesting, particularly when we get in, in the area of sociosexual sexual behavior. In humans and other animals, obviously we're a lot more tolerant in our society now than we were before. You look at you look at other animals like bonobos, which are very sophisticated primates, and dolphins, um, and you look at the development of sexual behavior. You look at the development of what we call sociosexual behavior. So I'll give you the shortest possible story here. So we had we had studied um, two mothers and their calves in a facility, and what you see is that what looks to be the adult sexual behavior pattern. And much of social behavior develops in the with mothers and infants, they're stimulating their babies. They're uh, nursing their babies. The flashing of the ventrum um, solicits a baby. There may be something hardwired. We don't know where the baby looks. starts nursing on creases. The mother tends to direct it. Then the mother is also stimulating the beak genital area of the ba- with her beak, the genital area. That again, and then you see these chases that ensue. The baby sprints off from the mother. The mother's chasing the baby. And as I was watching this, I I was looking. I'm saying, I'm seeing. This, the, the courtship behavior pattern in adults in the mother young pattern. And I found it fascinating because, again, when you think about the roots of sociality and sexuality, it may come from these very early interactions. And then we saw these two young males that had shown these interactions with their mothers. Now, in their first months, that's how they start interacting. That's what they know solicits. And you see this in the wild. It's not just in a captive situation. We obviously want to keep looking. But I think there's a great deal that can be learned about the nature of what, again, the socio-sexual behavior. So here, so you look at male dogs offense and People who don't know about dolphins say, "Oh, they're uh, they're gay or they're you know they're homosexual." They're not. They're interacting socially. That is their behavior. When females come into estrus and start soliciting, they it becomes reproductive behavior. And I think it sort of broadens our view of of these big-brained animals. And I think in our own species, you know, if you sort of take away, you know, the, the biblical underpinnings of what we should be doing and what we shouldn't, I think that may be much more natural. State. We see with bonobo societies a great deal of behavior, with penguins. I mean, there, it's a, we see much more sociosexual behavior in the animal world. Um, and humans are part of the animal world. So I think it's a bit of an eye opener.
7: A lot of
2: things that we assume we are, in fact, deciding to act in a certain way or do certain things are, in fact, Biologically, it's not no, like uh, we think it's we are deciding. No, well, a different no. meeting. No, no, but no, it's a different panel. You're no. on the wrong panel. No, but what I'm trying to say is that there are certain things uh, that we assume we are an agent in, that we really are simply repeating
3: what yeah. one of many. Yeah, I'm guessing about 98% of the things we do mm-hmm. are not, but that's yeah. you know, that. Yeah. Yes. So Franz
5: Duvall is going to be speaking next week at the American Museum and doing a great talk on empathy. You know,
3: I'd like. also say there's another view as to how this kind of thing can tell us about human behavior, which is actually, I think, kind of Alexandra's point of view, which is we can learn about our own behavior by the, beha- by the things we project onto a dog. So when it comes to domestic animals, of course, we're in the selection seat with domestic animals. So we select for things that appeal to us mentally, presumably, or food-wise, maybe, our taste buds. But in the case of dogs that we don't eat, we're clearly selecting for traits that we find appealing. So this must tell us something about us. And, of, and I, I mean, I know you work enough to know that we make all sorts of mistakes about what dogs like, because we projected on them, right?
6: Right. Many of our projections could probably, I mean, could bear out. But some, but most of them really are reflections on ourselves. it seems to me. Um, and, but as to the, and as to that question of kind of what looking at animal behavior could tell us about human behavior, I think because we are, don't have access to the non-human mind, we do that. We just attribute. And as scientists, we say, okay, don't attribute, instead just look at behavior. But so we're kind of, we're given, too, there's too much richness in the human. We have, we think, access to each other's minds, or at least a way we feel like it's going to be roughly analogous to my mind, right? Um, and, and so we don't even really look at behavior so much. I mean, the, those who look at behavior like an ethologist, I th- a human behavior, I think would see some of those same types of patterns that Diana's talking about with the dolphins, right? And, and we recapitulate the kind of um, behavior action patterns we have in our early life later on again and again and again. And the ones that work to you know, get the mate or get the friendship or get the job. We keep those ones and we, we do away with the other ones, but it's the same type of thing. It's just that we talk about it at a higher level. Right? And all of those cognitive, the words we talk, I mean, and this is what is so interesting about you know, starting as comparative psychologists, all of us who are looking then at non-human mind is our words are human words for human development. When do we get a theory of mind? When do we have self-awareness? When do we develop empathy or, the, or secondary emotions and so forth? But with all of those we could say well do we really have it you know theory of mind is one of those great ones where the theory of mind is thinking the thing that all humans develop that we're, where we're thinking at about age 3 or 4 we start thinking about what other people know or believe that's different from ourselves you know before age three, children aren't really doing that, right? They're classically egocentric and they think everybody knows what we know. But at age four, they realize they have to wait until their mother is out of the room to go and get the cookie, right? And then they can deceive her because she doesn't know about that. Well, but you could also look at a lot of human behavior and say, are we really acting with a theory of mind? I mean, is what I'm doing now in my attempt to communicate, taking into account what everybody, maybe it's implausible, but what everybody else is bringing to the subject so that we are best, communicating? Certainly not. I'm just talking, you know, and I'm hoping that some of it hits, right? And I have a general, I'd make a general guess as to what other people's understanding is and interest and how they came to their thinking about the words they're using. But I certainly, I might not have a theory of mind at that level. And so, the better way would really be, I mean, that's, I am totally an mythologist, but to look at behavior, just say, how do I how do I Change my behavior to best suit situations, and, and that would explain to me huge amounts of, you know,
8: what Freud also tries to explain using the mind. So Ed, so I let me let me give an alternative. You could you could I uh, I sort of am an, a human ethologist because te- as some of you know I teach the Alexander technique and my own and my own ideas on this. So I I sort of daily observe people. And I teach people performing actions. And one thing that I observed early on as a teacher, and I observed it myself as well, is that even a simple so-called voluntary movement in a human being is not nearly as voluntary as it appears. And you could demonstrate this with someone. You could ask them not to perform an action. And they'll agree with you that they will not, that they do not intend to and will not. And then you could actually vicariously perform the movement for them. And they will perform it against their will. Very often, and, you're, and in my view, by the way, you're demonstrating mind. I mean, you're demonstrating that, they've, that there's no way to account for that except to say that they had some idea. I call that idiomotor action. You know, borrowing from William James, who described this kind of thing years ago. So, in even the simplest action, you could describe uh, in humans, you could you can observe something very mechanical and uh, determined, sort of. And in that respect, not very different from from other animals. The problem is that humans, unlike any other animal, are capable of observing that and actually raising the process of how they do things to a more conscious level. And that's one thing that I study. I study. I I use the word mindfulness, but I study kind of mindfulness as a psychophysical process, not just attentional. And my question is if all, if all human behavior can be reduced, or 98% or a lot of it can be reduced to what we see in animals, why is it that we're capable of being mindful if you practice it all the time? Why is it that we're capable of actually observing our, our let's say, selfish motives, and saying, I don't want to behave that way. I actually see that something I want to say is pretty much a need to speak, so I'm not gonna say that. This quality, this capacity in humans, to me, separates humans from all the other animals. And it separates our behavior from any animal behavior, mindfulness alone. And, I, it, and what worries me is that people will go to a, a Buddhist you know, uh, seminar. And study this, and say this is great. And then the next week they'll go to a scientific seminar, and they say, hey, "No, we're we're really basically animals." Well, which is it? I mean, we are it's, animals. They're, let's just get that. We are well, I animals. Get I, okay, get okay. I get that. I get that. Okay. Okay. But you're saying that no other
5: animals can show constraint or conscious thought about self, I don't or
8: control. Anything. Here, I'll, I'll stand yeah. my ground. No animal is capable of being mindful of practicing conscious attention. Oh, Wait, what does that mean?
5: Yeah, let's get, let's get into a definition here. <laughs> yeah, define it. I don't know what you mean either. Can you tell us exactly what
8: you well, mean? Well, a very, a, very, uh, a very simple you know, uh, sort of in-the-moment description of mi- mindfulness is simply doing something and being attentive while you do it, being con- uh, consciously aware while you do it. Okay, Self-aware. So- I- Yes. Well, wait a minute. Let me talk about this. But this is only, only a very fringe aspect of what humans are capable of.
5: Okay. I mean, we, you're, I, we're under- capable. I, I really don't understand that either.
8: Well, this is, know, but, I know, but yeah. this is why I think I'm you know, here, I'm, and this is also, yeah. okay. And, okay, I, but, and also but, why I'm <laughs> articulating why I'm here because I notice but, that everyone's it on my But you need to, you need to articulate a little comment. bit better. <laughs> well, okay, but yeah. my, no, give me an example. Give me a solid example. Um, the problem with when we describe, when we try to explain human behavior by looking at animal behavior, is that we segregate the aspects of human behavior that are clearly, in my view, clearly different. And then when you and then when you say, "Hey, this is what I think is clearly different," people say, "Well, is that even there?" Well, I, I, you know, mindfulness is not an easy uh, um, an easy discipline to learn. But we know it can be learned. I mean, there's, no, there's just no question about this. We know that martial artists practice it, people in meditation practice it. So I, so the, trying to explain what that is may not be so easy. But I believe that there are a number of faculties like that, similar to that, that are not just mindfulness. But anyway, so. But what
4: you're trying to argue is that a parrot
8: sitting on a perch could,
4: would not could not be mindful. How would we ever know? Well,
8: I, 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 I'm not studying parents, so I, I can't. Well, I mean, any. <laughs> but you know, back. I study children, I study children, and I study children, you know, from a fairly young age. So, in my view, kids cannot even remotely approach what mindfulness is, it, clearly not uh, till they're. In their teens and and generally speaking later after their teens, cannot even begin to approach it, so to me it 's a subtle cognitive skill and so because I see it in, see it how difficult it is you can 't even speak of a toddler being mindful it 's just not possible, and that 's why I sort of I willing to make the transition to animals
5: from what I understand of mindfulness, and it's not something of it's the idea of sort of monitoring your own feelings and thoughts and becoming more aware of your motivations and your your overall surrounding. It's an expanded awareness of you and yeah one aspect of that okay so
8: it could also be being aware of proprioceptively let's say you're sitting here mm-hmm. and you're aware uh, not just having kinesthetic or proprioceptive input about your body, but monitoring it constantly so that it's something that's always in your background awareness. It could be, there are various ways. Or you could be focused on someone, as I am, let's say, to you, but I also may be aware of my peripheral field, and I'm aware of it consciously so that it's something that, if I were a martial artist, I could practice that so that even when I'm attending selectively, someone could enter the room and I would see them enter the room. This is...
4: Survive if they can't do that. No, I know,
8: but well, yeah, but I'll, yeah, I'll make a distinction. Cats cats, and dogs, I mean, again, I know cats and yeah. some cats and dogs pretty well. Cats and dogs are very, very alert in, in various ways, but they are, I think this is going to elicit a lot of controversy, they are subconsciously alert. They can't be consciously alert by definition.
5: Oh, wait a minute, I don't, I, I that's, yeah, that's I don't understand you're making that, yeah. Without, without Perhaps, any,
8: perhaps yeah. but I'm, I'm going to make it, and I, and I, and I've written a whole book on this subject, so. Well, having read a, having written a yeah, book yeah. on yeah, the
6: subject, yeah. Yeah. actually doesn't make it any less unfounded, un- yeah, yeah. okay. you know, the fact that we don't have any... That was extremely <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's just that lovely thing which we do with each other when we don't know something about a topic like the mind of a bird that we just assume there's nothing in there. Or that it's just going to be some variation yeah, get, of ours. That sh- I get that, but it's now. It's as if now it's I'm saying... It's not a I get that but. It's that is, seems to be the core of your question. You're saying like the difference is, and I could be wrong, so please correct yeah. me, but the, you're saying the difference is that Animals might be alert and yet vigilant about something that's happening in the periphery, sort of that mindful, mo- in the moment thing. But the difference is that we are conscious and animals are not conscious. However, I can't know that I'm right about saying that animals are not conscious, but that doesn't matter.
8: Uh, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I think there's a, uh, uh, an, okay. and all, the distinction to me is, is, I don't think I'm making an unwarranted assumption. Let, I'll t- say why. Because we all know, we've all, I mean, I assume everyone here has handled infants and sees how an infant is alert. So very often, a, let's say a four or five-month-old infant is highly alert. Do you think that the infant has a sense of self? My, in my experience, an infant does not have a sense of self in the way that we do. The consciousness that we, that we ascribe to, human, to adult humans, in general, I would not ascribe that to a four-month-old. I don't say
6: that we do not know if an animal, if a child has a sense of self at that age. Now, the way we define it, it seems un- because we're using specific experiment at the, with the five-year-old. One,
2: one could. Uh... Yeah, but there's plenty of research
6: in order to So lot we can't.
4: They don't pass certain tests, that's fair. Coming up, that suggests that these kids at four to six months old. And I wish I, I I skimmed just the abstract of this paper. I wish I had read it before coming here, but there was something to, to to do with you know attributing something or other. And they were showing this in a six-month-old through a looking task type thing. The surprise about something or other. What what's it's not just, but since somebody else was doing this, where they were. Checking the it was the kid the kid in an EKG type thing, and the brain was triggering in the way that it would only trigger if the child was very much aware of what it thought the other person was going to do. It's like the Okay, it was something like the person was looking at a, there was a box, and the person, and you put a ball into the box, and then a cover went over it, and the thing was either surreptitiously taken off, or taken off in view or something, and the child was either surprised or not at whether the person was going to go for the ball, because they should or should not think the ball was there. I'm, I'm doing this in a very sloppy way, but I'm trying to give you a feeling for this experiment. The point was that the child's brain responded the same way an adult Brain would respond in that situation, based on an attribution of what they thought this uh, you know this other person would expect to find in the box. Okay, which
5: when I read that I went I want to see the, read the whole paper they may because not have the motor skills and the cognitive wherewithal to express adv- I mean right. comprehension precedes but production in terms of language I mean, they're stuck I mean when we work with animals we're but like looking at pre-verbal yeah, babies thing, we, you
2: know so now we are going in a different direction yeah. which has to do with the issue of consciousness. But since it's four o'clock, we will stop here. Ah, so please, here, make your comments brief. Don't make three different comments; just one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Just> Otherwise, <once.
5: laughs> yeah. You stop the consciousness.
2: Just <laughs> one.
3: Just <laughs> one. <laughs> one,
2: one <laughs> please. <laughs> the mic's not on. Well. Wow. <laughs> 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 okay, so I'll
9: just focus on what Peter was saying. It occurred to me, and I can't be sure about this, but it seems that the your statement about design uh, is not taking into account the visceral understanding of geological time and yeah is that oh yeah okay so I'll, I'll just so that uh what it's easy to think that a forum is in a non-changeable or final state if we don't consider evolutionary time over hundreds of millions of years we can use those numbers but we have no macroscopic or cognitive experience of those time frames um, quick story to illustrate this there's a, a group of people called the Um uh, they're seafaring they live on houseboats they only come to land uh, for, to trade fish for rice and to repair their boats. Their children are uh, spend so much time underwater that they see more clearly underwater and than they do in out of water. They have fish hunters that can do things without weights, without any uh, apparatus, that allow them to go down to 80 feet, slow their heartbeat to 30 beats a minute, and stay in there for five to eight minutes. And if one runs that out over thousands or more of years, one could see physiological changes in what appears to be an end state of design. So that's just the comment. Um, the, 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 that, so, and then the other is that about the speciality is that um, a few months ago, I'll send the paper to anyone who hasn't seen it or wants it, uh, apparently it looks Pretty, pretty, there's confidence in it that a single a mutation in a single gene gave rise to our neocortical complexity over time, and that develops at a rate roughly 300% faster than the rest of our physiology. <laughs> so that accounts for some of the things you were talking about. That said, here's the question it's an ethical question because mm. uh, we, didn't, we didn't really go there that much. And this is for Alexandra, um, uh, Diana, and Irene. If we got to the point of being able, using epigenetics and other biosynthetic techniques, to modify that corresponding gene, if it exists, or implant it in non-human species, such that we could artificially accelerate the development of their neocortex, this would be, of course, vertebrates with encephalization, would that be something that any of you would consider doing? And if not, why not?
3: Mm. Well, if it was a pill, I'd take it.
6: I'll you that. Are you saying you have that but an injection,
3: now? I'm yeah. not having anything to do with it. Well, well, I, I mean, I agree. I mean for,
6: the, for the species that I study the most, uh, dogs, I, I mean, again, I'm, I am going to be a little parochial intentionally um, and and cognizantly in my response, but I think that part of what works for them is actually not um, uh, being self-sufficient. I mean, it is their dependency on us, and and therefore giving them something which kind of promoted their ability to evolve Mm -hmm. beyond us would not be useful for that species right now. That's That's my feeling.
9: I wanted to just link that to the, the, the difference, the one difference between us and everything and the other species is that we have this remarkably complex abstract language, and, then we, and that we can then categorize and refer to it as a model of the world, even if the correspondence with what we've modeled is not reliable. But that complexity of our linguistic capability is really what sets us apart, uh, as far as we can tell. Because no one else is giving, no parrots are yet giving talks at Columbia. Okay.
6: I'd love to be able to talk that way, and also, but I really value my dog's silence, by the way.
7: <laughs>
6: but oh maybe God! What if they had me. language?
9: <laughs> oh, they'd
3: be impossible, wouldn't they?
7: I enjoyed very much hearing about the tests that you ran, measuring the intellectual intelligence of other species. I'm wondering if anyone's... I wonder if anyone is doing any work measuring the emotional intelligence in other species.
4: It's extremely difficult and I'll say it because when we would, if we tried to do that, we would be even worse at imposing our patterns on them. So for example, I can you know the students will work with the bird and I'll say, Stop doing that, you're gonna get bitten. And the student says, How do you know that? And I said, Look at the body language. Okay, the feathers are ruffled, the eyes are slitted, the you know, the head of the, the parrot versus the back of the I mean, I'm reading his body language. Now, is he angry? Is he bored? You know, I don't know why he's what why he's doing what emotional underpinning is going on, but I can read the behavior and i i kind of joke about it that even as humans we're really rotten about understanding what somebody else is doing and interpreting it appropriately i mean you'll you'll go to your significant other and say you know why did you say that and you well i didn't mean to say it that way i didn't it wasn't yeah. and stuff so so it's really hard to do this emotional thing cuz we're so bad at it with our as humans with one another, to impose it on animals, I find, is just harder. I mean, we can read the behavior. We, we know what, what behavioral actions are going to lead to other actions, but that underlying emotional...
2: I think next time you have to bring your significant
4: other. <laughs> yeah. bird. Well, I no you longer have one. I no longer have a it's human a one. You know, that, That's a reason. There's a reason you
5: know, for that. I, I agree with Irene, I, although I think that um, as a scientist, what we try to do is increase our powers of observation and our ability to sort of bring together a lot of maybe anecdotal information and look at it more systematically. So, for example, with dolphins and elephants, um, in our field we can watch responses to the death of a conspecific and other of their own group. And again, we don't know what it means, but what you'll see often is things that look very much like grieving in humans. If it's an example is you have eight dolphins in a facility, Two are bonded, Spock and Shiloh. I'll just give goofy names. Spock dies, Shiloh's the one in the group that stops eating, starts sulking, and takes a week to start eating and getting with the other uh, animals again. And you know, when we look at it in human terms, it looks like grief. What it is to an animal may be be something else. There may be physiological disturbances, all sorts of stressors. But that's sort of where we are, so we try to look more systematically at that. We can look at signs for what we would say are empathy or caregiving, or perspective taking where in dolphins and elephants and bonobos, other animals and dogs you'll see behavior where an animal is injured or ill, and the others will give caregiving, will hold them up at the surface. They don't all do it, they don't always do it. It's very flexible. It's often to the ones they're closest with. They'll often go without eating to provide care. So when we look at those kinds of things, or look at a paper came out uh, last year by Plotnik and Duval, where they looked at one elephant showing conciliatory behavior to another that was distressed. They put their trunk around the animal and they look at how that happens. Again, we don't know what's going on in. The emotional, uh, in the emotional world of those animals. But what we do know is they, many animals have this, from rats to. The elephants, to dolphins have similar subcortical areas in their brain that respond emotionally in different ways to fear, to to caring with, for young and other things. So there's some interesting, you know, similarities. Whether it's the same kind of emotion, but maybe that doesn't make a difference if it's the same, because we would never know if it's the same. How do you know if it's ever going to be the same?
2: But, uh, you, you know, my question that I asked before, you just touched on it, that. The, uh, you said when the other dolphin is not eating and so on, you said it may not, we don't know what the emotion is, but it may be some physiological response. But that's also true with humans, right? Yeah. The, in that mm-hmm. sense, we, we are identical, triggers. but we secondarily may have explanations for what we are doing.
5: Right. And also animals, many animals show ulcers under stressful conditions. Hmm. And for us, it can come from different things, bacterial or, yeah.
7: I'm going to approach this from another angle, because I'm coming from another field. Um, I'm a painter and art historian. Mm And I'm interested in, painters often say, I'm only a link in a chain. I'm an individual, but I'm carrying on things that have happened in the past and the history of others. So, carrying within one is the history of other actions, other developments. So, the mind is not just a separate entity, it's an entity that's carrying a depository of history of all kinds. And therefore, uh, that creates, a, that's a form of evolution or development. Different kind of form, but it's a form that we are building constantly on others' lives who have gone through a conscious life. And I wonder how you can relate that to the animal kingdom, this sense of history and culture in which an individual life is beyond their life because they have they have imbibed other
4: lives, other consciousnesses. Great question. Anybody? Birdsong dialects. I mean, there's the birds will learn the dialects of their area, it's a cultural tra- tradition. Um, they tweak it a little bit for individual differences. That's their little take on it. But it's a cultural tradition. And you can see the, the changes over time. You can see the evolution of these things based on you know, what's happening. The, in the world, I mean, if you know, if the if the area that they're living in gets more more um, more tree-like, they'll have to shift frequencies a little bit and things like that. I mean, that's one one version of it. Mm-hmm.
6: I went to graduate school with a a number of people who believed um, and espoused that the unit of interest was really not the cognition in the brain, but a distributed cognition of a group. Mm. And that's how they studied. How do people work together in a group? It's not one person who's solving the problems. I, as a human, am a tool user, but I didn't make most of the tools, which I use. I let somebody else make them. and so So it makes more sense to talk about the cognition of a group. And you can define the group variously. And I think, in some ways, lots of different animal societies could also be described that way and that is a kind of historical cognition in other words the group operates because lots of different members have been have different roles or understandings such that as an entire group they have a cognitive ability Um, I think that might be one way to recast the type of thing you're talking about such that it it might be relevant for humans and non-humans
5: I think the idea of also matriarchs, the older females. There's data coming out showing that in elephant societies and in cetacean societies, that these female matriarchs seem to carry the knowledge, and that's passed down. There's increasing evidence for cultural transmission within these societies, and but this matriarch, the non-reproduct, no longer reproductive female, leads the group in Africa to the right places based on seasons and things. And when with the removal of those animals from poaching or whatever it has detrimental effects on the groups, taking out males that are, that are uh, male elephants by poachers have effects on the um, acculturation and control of the younger males, so these key roles are important, but carrying the knowledge um, having a, a real effect on behavior of others around you I think it's a great point you're bringing up,
3: thanks Thank you Do you not going to say anything about this? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that, that you're exactly right in some ways. That, I mean, that, so there, there's little bits of evidence here and there of, of this kind of cultural transmission, but you don't really find it, I think you don't even find it in humans until you get to pretty modern humans. I mean, I think you could you trump me here on this, but I think much like technology in the Bronze Age, I think art in the Bronze Age, or through thousands of years, remained relatively similar people made artifacts and you know for thousands of years the artifacts all look sort of the same but now we have you know I, I mean, it's, now the arts are changing all the time I mean they move at a much more rapid pace and that's not that has nothing to do with evolution that is a cultural thing uh, that humans knew- do.
7: They move at a more rapid pace uh, maybe the concept of the individual uh, which evolved through time has also changed things in that way so that an individual feels that within themselves a, a da Vinci or even earlier than that can Add a whole new dimension that this given that aren't part of the canon of an age. But I think there's always been change. I don't think the Bronze Age was. I think it was a slower evolution, but it was there. I don't believe there's any stagnant period ever. I don't. I don't believe in vacuums. But the concept of the individual, individual life, did change. That yes.
1: Hello. <laughs> I hope I won't be. Too unpopular, if I start out by correcting two things that grated on my ears like fingernails on a blackboard. One being that there could be some evolution of human intelligence in the last 5,000 years, which was repeated. 5,000 years is nothing in human evolution. Uh, we're, we're, We're talking about the emergence of a kind of mentality we between 100,000.
2: So you don't get upset. Between 40. What? Huh? <laughs> we change it to 50 million, you don't get upset. Oh, no, what no, now you're way up. 100%. No,
1: now you're way on the other side. But we now didn't we said the
3: just side. the opposite. I just want to be clear. Huh? We said just the opposite. It couldn't possibly be evolution in 5,000 years. All right. Um, Sorry. But, but I mean, I, I mean 5,000
1: years ago, they were building pyramids. They were quite right. as intelligent as, I, as I I have we are. had the same exact brain we have now. absolutely agree All right, we won't quibble over the time. but... The, the paintings, the Lascaux paintings and the, and the Chauvet paintings were between 30,000 and 40,000 years ago. Uh, Neanderthals were still, we've just discovered some, some new kinds of tools and possibly art in the rudiments of Neanderthals that died out uh, 40,000 years ago. I leave that topic now. Second thing that bothered me was the idea of uh, being upright somehow facilitates the kind of intelligence that we have. I need to point out that we had at least 17 different kinds of hominins wandering around the world uh, that were all more or less upright and only Homo sapiens came up with what we think we have. These uh, these were creatures like uh, Ardipithecus ramidus and uh, Australopithecus, uh, all of these creatures, Uh, could walk they had good hands in fact it's generally understood by anthropology now that uh, uh, walking upright was not correlated with intelligence at all Uh, the intelligence came way after there were all of these upright hominids walking around look at bonobos now for instance and that's a whole story in itself they often walk upright they're very bright they don't do art they don't do language uh, so it cannot be
8: a, a walking but they're upright. but they're not upright so i'm not sure why you ma- they're not actually upright so why do you mention Oh they're very they're often art. upright No i mean yeah. a fu- no i mean they're not a fully upright i thought i thought you were referring to a well, fully not full upright full is fully I'm upright talking about a i mean fully upright <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love that. <laughs> you know,
8: depending on the state of my back that day. Uh, but no, only, no, 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 you, no, 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 no. I, I thought you just said uh, Homo sapiens. They're the only fully I, I, I don't mean to be
1: disrespectful. <VI> I want to be polite, but you're <laughs> but totally is, off the beam. You, you, don't, you, don't, well, you, you don't have a grasp of. The range of upright creatures
8: that did not I have... don't understand. You're talking about bipedalism. We are the only fully upright species. That's, I mean, there's no debate on this in the, in, in, uh, among, uh, among scientists. We're the only fully upright species. Well, there is debate about it, but I want why, to drop why, it now. I want sure to drop you... it now. So what uh,
1: is your question? I want to drop it now. You, you can read my book, and maybe my book is totally wrong, too. <laughs> Paul Darwin's universe. Um, what i really want to bring up is this because uh i've been fortunate for the last three years to be the director of a uh, a project on alfred russell wallace uh for the templeton foundation now you may not know him some of you may know he was darwin's junior partner he was the man that came up with the idea of evolution by natural selection to shorten the story. Roughly the same time Darwin did, they published it together, they, they share co-credit. Uh, but they had a very interesting difference of opinion. And that difference of opinion was that Wallace, who was a great naturalist, out in the field for many years, observed many animals, He drew what I call a white picket fence around human mentality, around human consciousness, around human cognition. Uh, He thought that natural selection could not account for the kind of consciousness we're talking about. And Darwin said, "What, what do you mean? Everything goes by gradual steps. There's no great leaps, and Wallace And he said, you don't understand natural selection. Wallace said, I'm the inventor of it, along with you. I understand natural selection. And what natural selection says is that a trait has to have a utility to an organism in order to be selected. Now, if you have an ape, said Wallace, wandering around picking berries and eating lizards, and like a gorilla, perfectly well surviving, and having a social group, and having all kinds of behavior, why would he need to compose symphonies? Why would he need to have mathematics? Why would he indeed even need to have uh, the sophistication of language beyond a very, very basic uh, thing? And, and uh, uh, he said you, you can't, uh, you, an animal cannot de- develop something in advance of its needs. And uh, Darwin wrote him a famous letter in 1867, said, I hope you have not murdered too completely your own and my child, <laughs> meaning natural selection. And Wallace wrote many books on this uh, later, The Place of Man in Nature, The World of Life, and so on, in which he continued this theme. And you're talking about the special sauce Wallace thought there was special sauce. Wallace thought there was an infusion of spirit from an unseen universe of spirit, a cosmic intelligence. He never used the word God. He did not like organized religion. But he thought there was some kind of intelligence in nature guiding evolution and responsible for infusing and injecting in humans this what some call emergent quality uh, that was more than the sum of its parts. This is not a question and I don't want to hog the floor. I've said my piece. Thank Thank you. (laughs)